Coming up on this week's show, we kick off Pride Month with Philip William Stover talking about his book, The Hideaway Inn. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 243 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from willknaus.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We're happy to have you here as we kick off our month-long celebration of Pride. Can't wait for you guys to start hearing the bonus episodes we've got coming out later this week. And we've got a lot of great stuff right here as we kick off our literary festival for the month. And speaking of, it's book club announcement time. Yes, we are pleased to say that our book club selection for the month of June is going to be Heartache and Hoofbeats by Maz Maddox. This book is a bit of a departure from some of the books that we've been selecting over the past few months. It's got shifters and adventure, all in a Wild West setting. As usual, you have picked the book I didn't know I needed. Uh, I've really enjoyed this book and, and can't wait to discuss it for everybody. Now, if you're wondering if Heartache and Hoofbeats is the book for you, we've got the author herself here to tell you a little bit more about it. So Heartache and Hoofbeats is a paranormal shifter Wild West romance that has some unconventional shifters in it. It is about a small town sheriff whose name is Cal or Calhoun, who is a centaur, who gets word that there are some notorious train bandits making a play for a train that's kind of rolling past his town. So him and his crew go and chase down the bandits, but they're only able to capture one of them, whose name is Jesse. And so they chase off the other guys and bring Jesse back into Stallion Ridge, which is the town. And um, now they've got to wait for the marshal to come into town a a week or two later to hang Jesse for his crime of being part of the Iron Bandits. Well, of course, if that complicates things because poor Cal and Jesse are forced to stay in the jail together while Cal monitors him so he doesn't try to leave. And, you know, Jesse's a charming dude. So it goes from having to house this prisoner and wait for his fate to trying to see if he's going to be able to save this guy from, you know, the hammer of justice, I guess. So, but, (laughs) so that's the book in a nutshell. And of course, in between that, there's a bunch of other fun crap that happens. There's a cool ghosty thing that happens and a cool showdown and all kinds of fun stuff. I came up with the idea while I was working overnights at a 911 call center in Fort Worth, Texas. And if you're unfamiliar with Fort Worth, Texas, it is yeehaw to the bone. Like everything is cowboy themed. The whole aesthetic is longhorns. It's it's ridiculous. It's like the most Texas town in Texas. And that's a hell of a statement. So while working there, I was texting my editor, best friend, Ethel to my Lucy schemes, Jess, about these characters and the story that'll never see the light of day. And I was like, wouldn't it be hilarious if we put them in a Western setting like Wild West and all this stuff. And then somehow it morphed into what if so-and-so was a centaur? Like if if we're going to have shifters in a Wild West, wouldn't it make sense that one of them's a centaur? And I was like, ha, holy shit, I have an idea. So like 
it kind of blossomed from that, from us goofing around on a text message to this exploding world now where I'm, you know, six books deep into a seven book series. And now I'm like the centaur lady. And it's just, and I wear that with pride. It's like my favorite thing. So yeah, it was a silly joke and it turned into something great. And I love it. So the book club episode featuring Heartache and Hoofbeats is releasing this week to our Patreon community. But don't worry, that book club episode will be galloping your way and into your podcast feeds at the end of the month. It's coming Tuesday, June 30th. In The Hockey Player's Heart, the feel-good gay romance by Jeff Adams and Will Knauss, hockey star Caleb Carter returns to his hometown to recover from an injury. He never expects to run into his one-time crush at a grade school fundraiser. Seeing Aaron Price hits him hard, like being checked into the boards. The attraction is still there, even after all these years, and Caleb decides to make a play for the school teacher. You miss 100% of the shots you never take, right? Aaron has been burned by love before, and can't imagine what a celebrity like Caleb could possibly see in a guy like him. Their differences are just too great. But as Aaron spends more time with Caleb, he begins to wonder if he might have what it takes to win the hockey player's heart. Get the hockey player's heart at Amazon.com. So let's talk about some books. I have read a couple of truly incredible things uh, that I am really excited to talk about within our first episode in this Pride Month. The first is a debut novel from Meryl Winsler. It's called Something to Talk About. And this is a wonderful workplace romance. It's so swoony romantic, and it's got this Hollywood setting that just made this the perfect thing for me. Joe Jones is a powerhouse in TV as the force behind a successful television show. But she's looking to make the move into feature films by taking on the next Agent Silver movie. Now, Agent Silver, as presented in the book, kind of strikes me as like a 007 sort of super cool action-y spy, but also maybe a little bit Mission Impossible and maybe a little bit Jason Bourne. It's not really clear, but it's it's very much a man's man kind of film. And so Joe's getting a little pushback that she's in consideration for this job. Joe's determined, though, she's a former child star, and she's a quite outspoken one as well, having taken on how her Asian character was treated on the TV show that she'd been on. These days, she doesn't take crap from anyone. Now, Emma is Joe's longtime assistant, and she's on the cusp of moving from her assistant job to a larger production role on Joe's show once Joe takes off to work on the movie. Emma enjoys her job, her boss, and her life. But when Joe invites Emma to the Screen Actors Guild Awards, Emma says yes only because Joe wants her to be a shield against unwanted questions surrounding that Agent Silver film. Emma is not exactly one to be off in the spotlight and, you know, being all glammed up for the, for the award show is a little uncomfortable for her. Now, Emma ends up playing this buffer role on the red carpet when Joe gets some questions that are not really appropriate. But as she steps in to stop that, her and Joe have a moment. They share a laugh. Joe touches the small of her back in a, in a way that the paparazzi, you know, capture on film and some rumors are born. Now, Joe's never commented on her relationship status before, and she doesn't start now, which means the story about these two continues to draw attention of friends, family, and far too many others in the industry. Now, the thing is, Joe and Emma are attracted to each other. This is a wonderful slow burn romance as these two battle their internal fears about being a couple, 
all while ending up showing for affection each other in random ways that make them happy in the moment, but then freak them out when they step back and consider what they've done and who may have seen it. I tell you, Meryl does this thing, this slow, slow thing so well, and it kept me engaged, turning the virtual pages and rooting for Emma and Joe to get to their happy place. I love the Hollywood setting too. The producer slash writer and her assistant was a great setup. This, of course, puts Joe and Emma together a lot, from working in their office to working on the set to scouting locations to having to be together a lot. And they really have to pay attention all the time to who's around. The ins and outs of Joe transitioning from the TV to the movie was very enjoyable and provided a great backdrop and kind of an equal story arc as these two are also looking to potentially move into another aspect of their relationship as well. There's a little bit of rip from the headlines in here, too, because there is a plot involving some sexual harassment when a visiting director to Joe's TV show makes some inappropriate moves on Emma. And it gives the two characters pause for what they're doing as well. Is there workplace harassment here? Is there something inappropriate in what they're doing? And it provides another interesting external force to their relationship. The romantic overtures, small and large, between these two are really swoon-worthy. Joe totally goes into caring mode when Emma has a minor medical emergency uh, while they're at a conference. Emma takes care of Joe well beyond her assistant duties, making sure her boss eats, making her day easier, and occasionally just bringing her a sweet treat from her sister's bakery. And there's more hardcore romantic moments too, like Joe giving Emma a call over Hanukkah while she's with her family. And Emma does have a wonderful family with her parents and sister. It is a stark contrast to Joe's controlling and judgmental father. Uh, I really wanted to punch this man. I can't tell you enough. The one time he shows up in the book, I really wanted him to be just put in his place. Uh, he behaves terribly towards Joe. And I, I really cheered out loud uh, when she actually put her father in his place. Joe's got a great longtime friend, too, who just happens to be an attorney, which you can bet comes in handy when there's a snitch that keeps feeding the press tidbits about Joe and Emma. This is a terrific debut novel, and I can't wait to see what comes next. I loved how Meryl captured Emma and Joe's doubts. It's not just about disrupting their working relationship. It's about being able to give their hearts and wanting to do the right things for the other person. The internal back and forth both women have struck exactly the right chord. And then there's the looks, the gestures, the worry over if they're doing the right thing. It was really all the feels for me. The audiobook is a great way to read something to talk about as well. Narrators Georgina Marie and Z Sands do a sublime job giving life to Emma and Joe. I was glad I read the book with them reading because it just added more to an already excellent story. So yeah, I wholeheartedly recommend Something to Talk About by Meryl Wilsner. And now on to a book that we've actually talked about on this show quite a bit, given that we haven't actually reviewed it yet. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, Will reviewed Philip William Stover's There Galapagos My Heart. And at the time, I said that I had read The Hideaway Inn and just loved everything about it. And I'm so happy to talk about this now. This book is everything I could want in a romance. It's small town, it's second chance, and... It also brings peace to a long-suffering guy who had lived with his shields up for way too long. Like any good Hallmark movie, there's a, we need to save the inn plotline. 
And the story has an amazing queer representation across its characters. It's really a spectacular debut for the Karina Adores line of LGBTQ romances. Now, Vince has come home to New Hope after losing his job following a disastrous workplace relationship. He set his sights on the Hideaway Inn, which he's bought, and is hoping to flip it and sell it to a hotel conglomerate who's looking for small boutique properties to have in resort towns like New Hope. Vince also wants to show the town the man that he's become since the days he was bullied in high school. He's thrown off balance shortly after coming to town, though, when he runs into his high school crush and the guy who broke his heart, Tack. Because, of course, this is the guy that you run into as you are having to hitchhike your way into town. Now, part of Vince's plan for the inn is to make the restaurant, which is really the only part of the inn that's working, into its profit center to help fund the rest of the flip. But he immediately loses his chef upon coming into town. And, of course, it's none other than Tack to the rescue, because Tack has spent some intervening years going to culinary school, and he's become quite the good farm-to-table chef. And it's exactly what the inn needs, even if Vince would rather any other person be cooking in his restaurant at this moment. Now, as you might imagine, Vince and Tack are like oil and water. These two do not mix. Vince's armor only thickens around Tack as he's determined to show that he is not the kid that was a target in high school. Tack, however, is a softy in the best way. He's determined to be nice to Vince no matter what, because Vince is the guy that he has been thinking about for years as well. He's hoping he can get Vince to let his guard down so they can actually get to know each other and catch up and find out who they are now. This is only aided by some forced proximity as Tack moves into the inn's owner's quarters, which is exactly where Vince is living because these are the only rooms that are habitable in the inn right now. The reasoning why Tack moves in is to reduce Tack's commute, but it only forces these two together to deal with each other. Uh, little things like seeing each other from the bathroom or Tack making Vince breakfast. It's the small things like this that start to chip away at Vince. Now, one of the places that Vince visits and where he actually has some good memories is the local bookstore. And it's run by Tula, who has transitioned from being Tom when Vince was in town last. Just another look at the queer representation that's in this uh, wonderful novel. The bookstore was a haven for Vince when he was young. And he still has a hard time relaxing here initially. But we do learn a lot of things about Vince while he's in this store talking to his old friend. And it's Tula who really gives him a good kick in the butt occasionally, too, to see that he has really changed and that Tack has really changed and that there are good things in New Hope for him. In some ways, this is a bit of an enemies-to-lovers story because in Vince's mind, Tack, when he gets here, is very much the enemy, even though Tack doesn't view him that way at all. Slowly but surely, though, Vince finally realizes that Tack has changed as he meets uh, Tack's ex-wife, and the amazing kid who's named Jules that these two are co-parenting. Tack tells the whole story of why he married when he did, how they had a child, and why they ultimately divorced. And it really shows Vince who Tack has become. And Jules, frankly, is one of the best kids that I've ever read in any book. They're such a free spirit and can't help but spread joy. And as much as Tack shows Vince what life can be like if he'd free himself of the past, Jules is even more of a catalyst for this. Now, Philip does such a wonderful job of bringing Vince and Tack together as they work on the end and truly start to see its potential 
but their own potential as a couple as well. They take day trips out to farms to source ingredients. They end up hanging out at a creek with a little bit of skinny dipping. They spend it a wonderful July 4th, along with Jules, enjoying a town festival. And all of this is happening. Vince is also battling himself over what he came to New Hope to do. But now he's realizing that his life and priorities just might be changing. And maybe New Hope is the place for him. Of course, there's the moment that happens when it seems all is lost. And mm, it's a rough, rough patch there. But Philip gives Vince a beautiful moment of soul searching that is only topped by the HEA that, of course, comes. Now, I have no doubt that this book is going to end up on my best of list for the year. And while it takes a minute to warm up to Vince, or in some cases, more than a few minutes to warm up to Vince, I totally get why he is the way that he is. And it really makes his journey all the more satisfying that he's able to find his happy. And Tack is simply a great, adorable guy. The Hideaway Inn is everything I want in a romance, and it's so unabashedly gay that I absolutely adore it. And I really can't wait to see what Philip has coming up next in this series. Now, you also read The Hideaway Inn this week. Yeah, I loved it for all the same reasons you did. I think this is a wonderful, trope-heavy, small-town romance. And I really loved getting to know the characters Tack and Vince and understanding their specific viewpoints about life and love and the town of New Hope and how through the course of the story they set some of their preconceived notions aside and find love together. I just, I really enjoyed it. I liked it an awful lot. I happened to listen to the audiobook, and I want to call out narrator James Cavanaugh. I think he did a really lovely job of not only voicing these two main characters, but the diverse secondary cast. I think he did an excellent job. This is the first time I've listened to this particular narrator, and I'm certainly looking forward to any future books that he does. So yeah, if you can't tell, we are definitely <laughs> fans of Philip William Stover, and we're definitely looking forward to whatever titles come up next in the series that he's working in. For sure. If you're interested in learning more about the books or anything else that we talked about in this week's show, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 243 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Want to hang out with us between shows? Check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post. News about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at Facebook.com slash BigGayFictionPodcast and see what we get up to next. And coming off reading The Hideaway Inn, I actually got to sit down for a conversation with Philip William Stover. We talk about this book what's coming up next in this series, as well as what's coming up in the series that he started with, Their Galapagos, My Heart. So let's check out that conversation now. Philip, welcome to the podcast. It is so great to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Congratulations on the release of The Hideaway Inn, which came out last week as one of the first books out in the Karina Adores line. I'm so excited that it's coming out and it's finally here. You know, you wait so long for something to um, actually make its debut. So now that it's here, I'm thrilled. Well, you should be. I just loved everything about it. It just made me so happy. The the story of Aww. Vince and Tack. Tell everybody what The Hideaway Inn's about from your point of view. I really wanted to write a summer romance. 
So this is a book that has picnics and lemonade and fireflies after sunset and skinny dipping and all the things that are part of a summer romance. The story is about Vince, who returns to a place he was raised after reinventing himself. And he's created this armor and tack the boy he loved in high school he expects him to respond to him differently than he did when he had a crush on him. But Vince learns that his armor is really pushing people away instead of having the desired effect that he wants. And during this, it's about the relationship between protecting yourself from the world and letting the world in and making a balance. And I think that is really a story that queer people can relate to in that we balance somehow being in the world and protecting ourselves while we're there, if that makes sense. And Vince really learns what it means to find love and be himself. And the be himself, I mean, he goes through what I think many gay men do, where things go sideways in high school and you're always kind of battling your way back from that. Yeah, I think that is such a astute way of putting it you're always battling your way back from that and i know that sounds insane in some ways like it sounds like oh it, it's such a long time it's been a long time since i've been in high school yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> but i can tell you wounds like that and the way you make decisions about who you will be in the world and certainly in terms of when you fall in love and when you kind of open yourself up to love in that way are really impacted by that. And I, I really wanted to write a story about it. Mm -hmm. Did you have specific inspirations for the story, touchstones that you had out there, things that you wanted to kind of tackle with it and present yeah, to I think people? The inspiration for this particular story actually came a few years ago when my husband and I were in Beacon Hill in Boston. They have these brownstones, and some of them have these random purple window panes. Hmm. And yeah, and it's very strange. And I learned that in the 1880s, when they were transporting these windows from England, they had an imperfection in them. And it turned the panes purple during transit. But they installed them, and at first they were considered a flaw and a defect. And then later, they became a, a sign of status and something that was coveted and something people really thought was beautiful. And I remember hearing that story and thought, hmm, one day I'll write a story about something where somebody thinks it's a flaw, but it's actually the thing that makes them beautiful. And that's what this story became. Vince thinks he has to be a certain way, that his flaw is something he has to cover up, but he learns that he doesn't have to cover it up. That's the thing that makes him beautiful. So that was really the inspiration for these these windows, which are actually called, they're actually called lavenders, which I think is lovely for a gay story. Is this place real? It's real in my head. New Hope is actually a totally real place. It's in, it's halfway between New York City and Philadelphia. It's on the banks of the Delaware River where Washington crossed, um, but it's not far from Washington's crossing. It has been historically a gay destination, similar to Fire Island or P-Town. New oh. Hope has always had this type of uh, weekend getaway for uh, queer people. 
In fact, the area, and I'm in Bucks County right now, this area used to be called the Genius Belt because Dorothy Parker's house was about two miles from where I'm sitting and James Mitchell's backyard was behind our backyard and Rogers and Hammerstein composed and lived here. So this area has always had a strong artistic background and that grew and grew with some drag history in the 60s and 70s and disco in the 80s. So New Hope is a, a definitely a real place. Does this inn exist or did you put an inn where you wanted it to be? In the words of Stephen Sondheim, I put an inn where there never was an inn. There is no hideaway inn, but there is an inn that this is based on that is in the same area. There isn't, the shops are wrong or, you know, there are different places, but the one place that is real is the quack shack where he goes to feed the ducks. Mm -hmm. There is this little shack in New Hope called the quack shack where you put like a quarter in and you get some duck food and you feed the ducks. Vince is really scared of these ducks. I am terrified of swans. Swans are no joke. I mean, I've seen, oh. I've never personally had a swan go after me, but I've, I've certainly heard tales. I have. I, they have a very distinct network. So if one swan does not like you, it seems like all the swans know I am like a swan target. So that part's very real. Um, <laughs> the bridge is real. All of the other parts are definitely based. Actually, the 4th of July festival that they go to is a real festival that happens here. And it's exactly sort of what happens in town. That's so cool. I like that this, that this is a real place mm -hmm. that has real history. As I mentioned at the very top of our discussion, this is one of the very first books in the Karina Adores line of LGBTQ romances. How does it feel to have that designation? Oh my God, it's so exciting to be at the start of something. I'm thrilled and I sort of fell into it in a very lucky way. Um, I read uh, Harlequin romances growing up as a kid. I've always been um, involved in that. That said, it's also totally terrifying, if I'm being honest, because the other people who are launching this, like Chelsea Cameron and Cole and Roan, are like master storytellers of romance and have wonderful followings and wonderful books. And I am totally new to this party. I'm a little self-conscious. I'm not sure if I'm wearing the right clothes or if I'm arriving at the right time or if I should have brought like a hostess gift or not. I'm not sure, but I'm still excited. And I'm hoping that once this comes out, there will be plenty of people who want to either dance with me or sit in the corner and watch other people dance. <laughs> this is my first gay romance novel. I've written a lot of books um, in other genres, but this is the first actual gay romance novel I've ever written. So I, that's why I say I am brand new to the party. If you see me and I'm wearing a newcomer's badge, please come over and sit with me for a little bit because I am really anxious to make new friends. Well, if we ever get to not socially distance, we will come sit next to you. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Now, you've got a very inclusive book here because not only do you have your heroes of Vince and Tack, who are obviously, you know, gay, but you've populated this town 
and your supporting characters with a broad spectrum too, from tax child to the bookstore owner to the farmers. And um, I, I, it, I really love that aspect of it and really how you use the supporting characters too to just expand on the overall queerness of the town. How did you decide how you were to populate New Hope and what characters you were going to, you know, make sure we got to know pretty well? Well, I definitely wanted to write a cozy town with like a Mitford feel, but gay, the gayest Mitford you could ever imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I wanted to I, I wanted to actually make like a, a gay Thomas Kincaid painting. Mm. which is maybe redundant i'm not sure and i love thomas kincaid and my husband is like disgusted by thomas kincaid so we had this clash of um aesthetics there but i wanted to write something that had a real range of queer people in it because at the heart of this story and i think i'm making it sound not sound like a very romancy romance it is underneath that is a story also about gender expression coming to terms with your own and i wanted to populate it with people who would have that range i don't did you ever see i'm sure you've seen the movie the women from the 1930s right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and you know they redid it in 2008 with diane english and i remember really well in that movie on set in the library, there were busts of men. Like there were like two or three, like way in the background. And the whole thing about that movie is they wanted to have only women on screen from start to finish in both versions. Like if you notice in both of them, all the extras, all of the smaller parts are women. Mm -hmm. And I remember way back then hearing that and thinking, wouldn't that be interesting if you could do that with gay and queer people so that's how i populated this world i wanted them all i think and i don't know if every single person in the book is gay but i think so which is just really wonderful it, it gave me such a, a warm feeling because it is very romance forward i mean the romance of tack and vince is is the story but it's their support system around them and the people in their lives that just really flesh the world out and that and i wanted that part to have some more fantasy to it and i wanted to balance that with making sure for me the voice was as authentic as i could make it so i was okay if the rest of it felt like you know th th that town might have non-gay people in it so i i really wanted to balance those two things but i'm so glad that you found that community as a character in the book also because i really tried to make it that yeah, very, very much so. Were there any aspects of the of the story that I'm going to make you pick among your children now that were more fun for you to write than others? Because the book has so much heart. It just seems like, by and large, it would have been kind of fun to come up with the story and to put it on paper. I've always had like a a love for Americana, for kind of country fairs and small town things like that, sort of anything you would see in Little House on the Prairie, like that type of aesthetic, that kind of Americana. Mm -hmm. And as a gay man, I've always liked that, but I've also felt a little outside of it. 
So anytime in this book where I could sit inside that world, I was so happy. They go to a 4th of July festival and hold hands there that I love. They go to a lavender farm and go to a a goat cheese farm. They tube down the river. All of that type of things that to me, growing up, I never knew if I would have access to those things. Giving these characters access to it made me feel really good. Does that make sense, I guess? Yeah, it absolutely does. I, I wanted there to be a place for them. And I wanted these characters to know, like, yeah, there's a there's a place for you here. So this particular episode is our very first one within Pride Month. And all this month, we're having authors come and read some selections from their work for us. And we're going to get to kick that off with you and a uh, little bit of the hideaway in. So what part of the book okay. are you going to give to us? So I'm reading a section from actually very near the end of the book. And this is where Vince um, is really questioning some of the choices and the mistakes that he's made since he returned to New Hope and also since leaving New Hope. And he goes to the Museum of Modern Art, which is where I had my very first internship in college. And he's really thinking about those choices and the experiences of they come from the experience of myself of being a young adult. And this part I'm going to read is somewhat personal to me in that when I was in high school, there was this guy, and if he saw me, my day was miserable. If he saw me, he would find me and start calling me names and teasing me or pushing me or shoving me or getting a bunch of other people to gang up on me. And it was awful. And As a teenager, I remember laying in bed and thinking, oh, if this, if I could, if this guy has a good day tomorrow, then I can have a good day. Or if this guy, you know, sits in a different part of the lunchroom, then I can be okay that day. And I remember thinking, I just want to, I just want to be able to control my own experience as a, as a kid, as going to school. Does that make sense? Like I, I, I want it to say, and I always thought, and because I was teased for being effeminate. So I always thought, oh, if I could just not act that way, then I could control how other people treat me. And I couldn't actually pass for being very masculine. So I never really was able to develop that. But in the book, Vince is able to do that. And it's to his detriment because he thinks he's controlling the world by protecting himself from that. And this is the scene where he sort of begins to think that might not be such a good idea. Finally, I go to the Museum of Modern Art to visit my old friend, Cezanne's The Bather, a painting I've sort of had a thing for since I first saw it as a teen. The museum is crowded but I'm able to stand right in front of the masterpiece. A teenage boy, painted in somber shades of blue, stands at the edge of the water in his swimsuit with his hands on his hips. He looks down, avoiding eye contact with the observer. He is shy and unsure of himself, but also present in his surroundings. He is almost naked, but not in a sexual way. He is exposed, but also without pretense, without a facade. I used to identify with this boy so much. I used to think it was a portrait of me, but now I have much more in common with the suits of armor a few dozen blocks uptown at the Met, 
I'm rarely vulnerable, like the boy in the frame before me. I'm always wearing a shield that has been polished and maintained over the years. But I wonder if there is still a boy underneath. I used to think that painted boy was weak, like I was when I was a kid. But I realize now he isn't weak at all. Being a man isn't something you become or something you show people. I don't know what it is. I used to think it was the most important thing in the world. If I was a man, I could be safe. I wouldn't have my fate decided by people around me. If I could be a man in the way the world wanted me to be, maybe I would be worthy of love. I always thought that was the thing that stopped Tack from being with me. I wasn't worthy. I thought he was embarrassed of me. I spent my whole life trying to be worthy, and now I don't even know what that is. What's worse, I don't think it even matters. I think about Jules and their lack of interest in defining themselves. If I wasn't so worried all summer about showing Tack who I've become, maybe I'd have found a way to tell him the truth about everything. Maybe I'd be at the hideaway inn right now, sitting on the porch with both of them. I take in the blues and greens of Cezanne's brushstrokes. I just stand in front of the painting, like it's only me and the canvas and nothing else exists in the world. I study it, not for the composition or use of color, but for what it says to me privately. Sir, I think you may need this. A frail woman with a walker says to me, pulling out a tissue from her sleeve. Excuse me, I say, breaking the spell. Here, she says, take as many as you need. She gives me her compact package of tissues and walks away. I hold them in my hand and suddenly see a drop of water dampen the tissue waiting to be pulled from the pack. For a moment, I think the ceiling at the museum has a leak, but then I realize it's a tear. I've been standing in front of the painting, crying, and I didn't even know it. Thank you for sharing that. It, it became one of my favorite scenes in the book because it just, it captures Vince so well and what he goes through. He thinks he can protect himself from that. And he thinks that being, he thinks being an alpha is being a man. And that's all he knows from being in the world. And also he thinks that, and I, I mean, I have felt this so many times, especially as a kid. Oh, that person's embarrassed of me because I'm a feminine. I teach at NYU and over my years there, I've noticed students change in these profound ways. When I was in on campus as a student, I hid so much of myself because I was scared. In the beginning, it was like students kept being themselves more, gay students who were feminine or anywhere. And it changed over these years, whereas they were not trying to cover up anything at all. And as a teacher watching this, as a gay teacher watching this, it was so transformative for me. And I was with a student just this past semester, and they were telling me the story of their pronouns and, and their gender expression. And 
you know, I've never really cried in front of a student before. I usually make my students cry, if I'm being honest. But I was so moved by their their pride in themselves and their their ability to be who they are without consideration of the things around them. And I, I told my husband this, and we both cried. And I didn't know if I was crying like I was happy for him, but I also thought that is such a long time ago. I wonder who I would be if I was able to live my young adult life in that way. And the fact is, I don't know. Mm, and yeah. I don't know if you have that experience at all, or if you think that sometimes or have that. I don't know. I, I don't know. Most of my name calling came out of the fact that I lived in Alabama and didn't like football. Mm. I was very bookish, very into writing, even at a young age and that kind of thing. So that more than how I looked or sounded played into why I got called names and I didn't you, either, but that was a whole other thing. <laughs> were you able to pass? Probably. Mm. I, and that's where this book comes out of. So when people see him as a dick, they are seeing somebody who got there because of being a a target yeah. of ridicule and a target of people's aggression. And when that happens to you long enough, you learn how to stop it. Oh yeah. And if if and if you're Vince and you can because you can pass, that's what you do. Or that's what he does. Yeah. So <laughs> Seasons of New Hope is a series, and this is book one. Are there things you can tease us about the future installments? The next book takes place in winter, uh, because I really wanted to write a seasonal series. And it's about an antiques dealer in New Hope. And here he's all set to move in, and he is an expert in the Second Empire and ornate candlesticks and furniture and pewterware and everything matches and is perfect. And as he's moving into this antique store, he looks in the window and he sees a guy dressed in a Fozzie Bear t-shirt putting a Muppets lunchbox on a pedestal in the window of the store he's going to have to share with this guy. And it's about a collector who has things like Happy Meal toys and Barbies and Holly oh, Hobby fun. glasses and Snoopy stuff. And a guy who collects very staid metallurgy letter openers. And all the characters in the community from book one, they all return to save these two historic buildings that are possibly going to be torn down and they're two very different buildings that actually exist in new hope in the real new hope one is a mid-century bank and the other is a second empire building next to it on the river so it takes place in winter so there's hot chocolate and ice sculptures and pot-bellied stoves and sledding and all the fun winter things do you have a release date for the winter book January or February of 2021. Perfect. So it releases in the right season. So you've got one other novella out uh, and you re-released it in April. It's called There Galapagos My Heart. Tell us a little bit about that book. Well, that book is part of a series I'm working on called Love Beyond Boundaries. And they're all really travel books. 
I, I grew up always choosing mine. I still do. I choose my books by location and I'll sort of read anything if it takes place in Paris or if it takes place in the Napa Valley, like if that's what I feel like at that time. So I love heavy location books and their Galapagos, my heart takes place obviously in Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. Kiss You at Machu Picchu takes place in Peru and my Cotswold crush takes place in one of my favorite places in the world, the Cotswolds. My husband and I, my husband used to be the director of school programs at the Met, Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we did a lot of travel with the Met where we both lectured. So he would lecture about art and I would lecture about my area of specialization. And most of these travel books are sort of based on those experiences traveling with donors from the museum. Very cool. Do you have a timeline for the other books in that series? Is as soon as I can a timeline or is that not really a timeline? That's a timeline. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. So the timeline is as soon as I can get to it. Coming um, soon. <laughs> coming soon, exactly. So you mentioned also that you have written books in other genres, kind of going back to your origin story. What got you started as a writer? Well, as a kid, I was definitely in a lot of creative writing programs, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do that. But, you know, well, when, as I say, when you're a boy and you're at the Little League game playing left field, but you go out to the outfield with a copy of Family Circle or Ladies Home Journal, and you're sitting in the outfield reading that, they pretty quickly ask you to take a creative writing class instead. And that's sort of where I was and what I did. And I didn't really identify as a writer for, for a very long time, but really started then, and I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you as edited a version of the long story as possible. I went to a spiritual meeting of a guru of sorts. And and I went with a friend and I know you're thinking, where is this going? I've gone from <laughs> little league to a guru. I promise I'll get there. So um, I went to this meeting and they said, oh, we're now going to sing this special song. And they sang this special song and it just was so bad. It made me laugh so hard. I started getting the giggles during this solemn time and this woman who i didn't know this stranger next to me started getting the giggles too and so we had to leave the event and we were sort of got enough dirty looks to leave the event and she and i escaped to the hallway and became friends and it turns out she was a very well-known writer of women's fiction and she was the type of writer where if you were at a bookstore in an airport there would be multiple books of hers on the shelves. So I became friends with her and the real story of this, how I started writing with her and then for her, we were friends and I was paying my student loans in graduate school and she had to meet with her architect and I was upset about like making a bill. And she said, oh, well, come up with an idea and we'll pay off your student loans. And I was like, okay. So she went to meet with her architect and I came up with an idea for a book movie like that, like later that day, a couple hours later. And she said, oh, I like that. Okay, I can sell it. She made a few phone calls. And by the end of the day, we had a deal memo that not only paid off my student loans, but also gave her her large cut of it. And that's how I became a writer. 
well done. <laughs> well, so I wrote for her and with her, and I don't say I ghosted, although it, was, it wasn't like she said, she, I wrote it and she like signed her name at the end. We collaborated, but I was not mentioned in the, you know, she got all the credit for that and we mm. had a division of the money and it was going great and she was incredibly successful. And I thought I would do that for the rest of my life. And then she died suddenly and very publicly. And I thought, oh boy, what am I going to do? She was, of course, my friend, but also my boss. I was writing women's fiction and chiclet, mostly like Upper West Side divorcee voice, which is also my personal voice. So I wrote some chiclet and I wrote a, a book that we were going to do next. And it went to auction, which is great. And I did it, you know, I never mentioned her. I did it all on my own. It goes to auction. And the day of the auction, they find out I'm a man. And, you know, speaking, we've been speaking about masculinity. It's like, oh, here it comes to bite me in the ass on the other way. <laughs> and the act, the auction is like canceled. No one goes. It's at a time where this is like, how could we promote this? You know, this wouldn't work. So that dies. And then I think, well, I, I'm with that agent. And that agent says, you know, there's a call for these tween books from Simon and Schuster. Do you think you could come up with something? So I took our ideas that we had written for divorce days on the Upper West Side and translated them to 13-year-old girls. And then I wrote multiple series for Simon and Schuster. And I was happily writing tween books. And I would do readings. And because we've been talking about this also, I would do readings and it would be me, Jenny Han, who's, of course, you know, gone to incredible success and some other very successful writers. And we do a school assembly and they would have all the boys leave and go play basketball while I and the other writers spoke to the girls. I mean, ugh, like awful, right? I just kept thinking about the boy in the basketball gymnasium who is like peeking through the window, desperate to see us talk about our books. And that kid, you know, is obviously me. But I wrote tween books and I, I, you know, people would be surprised that I was a guy. And I would say, well, you know, I'm not a 13 year old girl, but neither are any of the people writing the books. So we're all using our imagination. And then thanks to the overlord algorithm, I kept getting gay romance in my algorithm feed. And I started reading that and I was like, oh, this is a thing. Let me try that. So that's how I got where I am today writing. That's awesome. That's a great story. We haven't had one like that on the show, I think, ever. It's a weird <laughs> long one. I'm sorry. It's... So besides more in the two series that we've talked about, is there anything else you can kind of tease us about what's coming up next? I have the Love Beyond Boundaries books that are coming out with travel. And then I am going back to my roots and doing a rom-com it's called Miles of Style, and it's a bit of a prince and the pauper that takes place at a queer lifestyle television program over New Year's Eve. Oh, fun. Cool. Yeah. And what's the best way for everyone to keep up with you online so they can keep track of all this stuff? I'm most active on Instagram. I can really relate to things visually, so you can find me there. I have almost no followers on Twitter, and I don't really tweet but you can find me there you can become one of my many many um, dozens of followers and not even up to dozens i only probably have under a dozen and you can also join my newsletter which i'd be so thrilled about because i have about 
12 people on it. I'm related to six and married to one. So please sign up for that. And because I wrote for tweens, I always respond to emails. I've never not responded to an email that I can think of from a reader. So you can always email me. Very cool. Well, of course, we will link to all that stuff in the show notes so that people can track you down and start following you as this book comes out. Mm -hmm. Now, before we wrap up, because it is Pride Month, tell us what Pride means to you. In my 20s, when I was in New York, Pride was really about flipping the script. Like it made New York gay for a day in like this very powerful way. Like everything was gay. And that was absolutely what Pride meant. It meant like being being part of a large group. Now that I'm older and married for a long time, we go to smaller Pride events out here in Bucks County. And for us, I think at those, I think there are as many people who identify as gay as there are people who probably don't. And it's not about flipping the script as it was in New York. It's more about being in a place where everybody is acknowledging our differences, but coming together in a way through sameness. So pride has meant different things to me over the years, but small town pride is where my heart is these days. Thank you for sharing that with us. I, I like that small town pride kind of thing, because uh, it's not a piece mm -hmm. of the pride puzzle that we hear a lot. It's all centered in the bigger cities. Right. Small town pride is growing. We have two small town prides within 10 minutes of each other. Doylestown and New Hope both have pride celebrations. Well, Philip, thank you so much for coming on the show, kicking off Pride Month for us and telling us all about The Hideaway Inn. I wish you the most success with that book. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun to talk to you. This week's interview transcript is brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks to Philip for coming to tell us all about The Hideaway Inn. I so much love the selection that he read. I think it was the perfect thing to read from that book for Pride Month, and I'm so glad that he shared it with us. I'm really glad that he joined us to talk about his work. I loved hearing about the plans he has for these series. And also his author origin story was pretty fascinating. It really was. Yeah. And I have to say, I'll say it right here for Philip. You need to write that Machu Picchu book quick because Will is beyond excited for that. Cannot wait. Okay, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Now, coming up next week in episode 244, author Alex Sanchez and illustrator Jewel Morrow talk about their collaboration on the graphic novel You Brought Me the Ocean. I had such a wonderful time talking to these two about this book. You Brought Me the Ocean is from DC Comics, and it actually retells the origin story for Aqualad. And it's a beautiful coming of age, coming out figuring out exactly who you are story. And I think people are going to be really interested in both the book and the story behind it. So be sure and join us next week for that. And also do not forget, we've got a whole week's worth of Pride Month bonuses coming your way real soon. Remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. 
For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 